Morning, City Light. How are you guys? Great. My name's Doug. I get to follow Jesus with all of you awesome people. And uh, I'm excited to start this new series of messages this morning looking at one of the most famous speeches in the history of the world. It's right up there with I Have a Dream or the Gettysburg Address, Jesus' very most famous speech, the Sermon on the Mount. So I'll kick it off this way. Have you ever been to Disney World? It's Disney's very own magic kingdom, right? And this magic kingdom is massive. It is huge. In the year 2017, 20.4 million people went to Disney's magic kingdom and they paid them over six billion kingdom dollars for things like parking spots and cotton candy and walks down Main Street USA and photos with princesses. If you've ever been, you know that it is an immersive experience. I mean, they pull you in, hang on tight, and deliver their best version of happiness to you. And I think most of us, when we imagine the Magic Kingdom, we think of a place of freedom, right? Just unlimited opportunities and options and adventures. But the truth is, the Magic Kingdom is actually um, planned and detailed and controlled down to the last detail, dictated by its CEO king and executed by its cast members. Don't you dare call them staff members because they are cast members. There's a certain specific way of living in the Magic Kingdom. For example, the entire theme park is actually built at the second story level, and there's underground tunnels so that cast members don't end up um, in the wrong part of the park, right? You can't have Elsa and Anna showing up in Tomorrowland. (laughs) Furthermore, the trash cans are a specific distance apart according to a math formula so that the park doesn't get too messy. The uh, princesses, they have a specific script that they're required to stick to. Every night, the fireworks go off at a specific time. And I'm sorry to disappoint you, but not a single stone was used in the construction of Cinderella Castle. It's just fiberglass manufactured to look like stone. Disney has created its very own Magic Kingdom. It has its own language, its own system of relationships, its own way of celebrating, even its own modes of transportation. There's a way of living in the Magic Kingdom. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus introduces us to his kingdom. And what we're going to discover is that like Disney's Magic Kingdom, Jesus' kingdom has its own system of relationships, its own way of celebrating, its own way of loving and blessing and serving and seeing and hearing, even its own language. But unlike Disney's magic kingdom, what we're going to see is that Jesus' kingdom is real. It isn't made out of fiberglass. It is real, raw, beautiful, tangible kingdom of God. And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, it's going to maybe feel like we're walking down Main Street, USA, or looking up at Cinderella Castle. We're going to be drawn into Jesus' kingdom, wooed into his way of living, life in the kingdom. So if you got your Bibles, go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. We'll jump into it there. Here's how it reads. Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, Hence the name, Sermon on the Mount. Those guys were smart to come up with that. He went up on the mountain, 
And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. What we're going to see is that these disciples who came to him weren't only like the most faithful, most committed disciples. Yeah, some of them were all in, fully committed to Jesus, but it also says that there were crowds around Jesus in this time. As Jesus talked about his kingdom, there were both the all in and those who were kind of on the edges of the crowd, looking in, exploring Jesus, learning about his kingdom and seeing if they wanted to live life in Jesus' kingdom. And I think like it's probably the same way for us today. There's some of us in the room, and we are all in, committed followers of Jesus. And there's others in the room who are kind of checking Jesus out, exploring Jesus, learning about him. You'd say, man, I'm in the crowd, but I'm not really in the core. And that's cool. As we go through the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to all get a taste of the kingdom and then respond as our hearts desire. So with that in mind, let's jump into Jesus' actual sermon. And he opened his mouth, verse 2, and taught them, saying, blessed. And we're going to actually pause right there because that word is monumental, blessed. It doesn't only shape the rest of this Sermon on the Mount, but it shapes the rest of Jesus' ministry, Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, blessed. Out of all the words that Jesus could choose to use to kick off his sermon, he chose blessed. And for us to really get an idea of how big of a deal this was for Jesus and the crowds that surrounded him, we have to remember that prior to this, God hadn't spoken to his people for 400 years. Not so much as one single word had come out of his mouth for 400 years. So for 400 years, God's people had remembered and rehearsed the last words out of God's mouth, wondering if those would be the final words out of God's mouth. Those words, we can read them in Malachi 4, verse 6, where God says, Lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Or in the old King James Version, it said, Lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. Those were God's last words, and they were a warning to his people that if they don't get right and listen up, he's going to come down there and do what? Curse them. God's final words were to uh, threaten a curse. And those are the words that would have been ringing in their ears for 400 years, passed down to their children for 400 years. And now, here's Jesus showing up on the scene. He's God come down to earth, just like Malachi said, just like Malachi predicted. He's God come down to earth, but when Jesus opens his mouth to start declaring the words of God, he doesn't pronounce a curse. Instead, he says, blessed. He says, blessed. And don't you know, everyone in the crowd just breathed a deep sigh of relief. Yes, this is God come down to earth, but instead of cursing us, he has come to bless us. The word bless that Jesus uses here, it literally means happy. Happy, happy. Like very happy, heart level happy. And earlier in Matthew 4 verse 23, Matthew wrote that Jesus would go around from town to town and he would heal people, do awesome stuff, and he would proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, the good news of the kingdom. So right off the bat, from the very first word in Jesus' sermon, the very first moment of his message, we know that his kingdom is happy, and we know from him going around and preaching the kingdom, that's good news. So maybe we can just sum it up this way, church. 
Life in Jesus' kingdom is blessed. Life in Jesus' kingdom is blessed. In the next 10 verses, Jesus uses this blessed, happy word nine different times to describe his kingdom. He doesn't say crummy or yucky. He doesn't say survive or get by. He doesn't say grit and bear it, hope you make it through it, hope you make it through it, I hope you survive, this is going to be rough and tough. No, Jesus is saying that his kingdom is designed to maximize our happiness, our joy, our rejoicing, our gladness. So let's say you're like one of those people kind of out on the edges, one of those folks who are looking in and trying to learn what it means to follow Jesus. And let's say you texted a Christian friend of yours and said, hey, I'll buy you lunch. Let's go out to lunch. I want you to help me understand, what is it like to follow Jesus? And let's say I was that Christian friend of yours. That means we would be eating at Qdoba, and you would ask me that question. And my response would be something like this. You know, it's tough. Following Jesus it's hard. I'm not going to lie. There's been times I wanted to give up, but I pushed through it, and I'm certainly not going to give up now. I'm in it to win it. I can't back out. Following Jesus is tough. But let's say that instead of taking me out to lunch, you took Jesus out to lunch. Now, I'm sure Jesus would also enjoy Qdoba, so the place would be the same. And let's say you asked him the same question. Jesus, what's it like to follow you? I think you'd get a different answer out of Jesus. I think he would say, the very first words out of his mouth would be, blessed. Following me is a joyful thing. It's a pattern of rejoicing and gladness. If you want to know the real raw truth of what it's like to follow me, I'd sum it up with the word blessed. I think that's what Jesus would say. And for all of us, before we go any further into the Sermon on the Mount, before we learn anything else, can we just celebrate that Jesus is for our happiness? He didn't come to curse us or crush us or confuse us. He didn't come to laugh at us or leave us. He didn't come to make us mad or mopey. Jesus didn't want us to be Snow White's grumpy dwarf. He invites us to be Snow White's happy dwarf, right? The life in the kingdom isn't about boring church and sad faces and bad sermons. No, life in the kingdom is about happy hearts, glad faces, and one really blessed sermon on the mount. I love that the very first word out of Jesus' mouth when he starts to describe his kingdom is blessed. Amen, church? Amen. Now, there's some of us in the room who probably don't like to be happy, even when Jesus says we're happy. You're probably actually upset that I use the word happy in a sermon. Happy. Happy, happy. Happy, happy, happy. Now, I understand your, your caution and your concern because it's a dangerous word in our day and time. So is the word blessed. It's a dangerous, easily misunderstood word. In fact, when you first heard the word blessed, chances are you immediately thought of riches or fame or comfort or a new car. Or if you're like me, you thought of a black Ford F-250 Super Duty with custom wheels and a raise to where your kids need a step stool to get in it, but not so high that they can't get in it. I mean, my ideas of blessed are pretty specific, okay? In fact, if you look at the more than 105 million posts on Instagram that are hashtag blessed, you'll find out there, there's a lot of people who have really specific ideas about what blessed means. 
Whether it's parents holding their newborn babies or a sunny day at the lake or the latest fashion trends or big biceps like mine or, you know, your kid wins the soccer game or you get a front row parking spot on a snowy cold day, we all have our ideas of what blessed means. So when we hear Jesus say blessed, usually we immediately import our own definitions of blessed. We think of what Instagram says is blessed, or what grandma says is blessed, or what America says is blessed. But since Jesus brought the word to us, maybe we should let Jesus define the word for us. For that, let's go back to the scriptures. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That's strange. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. That's backwards, right? Like, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. That's upside down. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. I mean, if all the words that I would attach to blessed, I probably wouldn't pick the word hunger or hungry. Skip down to verse 10, where Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus defines blessed in his kingdom in the most unlikely of ways. And when we take in the full effect of Jesus' declarations of blessing, Jesus' descriptions of happiness, I think we'd have to sum it up this way. Life in Jesus' kingdom is upside-down blessed. Life in Jesus' kingdom is upside-down blessed or backwards blessed or inverted blessed or just blessed in a way that we normally don't think of blessed. I mean, when was the last time you looked at a single-parent family in poverty and thought, wow, they're blessed? When was the last time you saw a classmate at school get bullied because she stood up for someone else who was getting bullied and you thought, wow, what a blessing for her? When was the last time you saw someone wrongfully get fired, yet they leave the company without bad-mouthing anybody, and you think, wow, they must be really blessed? We just don't think that way. We don't feel that way. But Jesus does. Jesus' understanding of happiness, his version of happiness is upside down. Or maybe we can think of it like this. Jesus' kind of happiness is deep. It's deep. Its roots go down deep into our hearts where the circumstances and the struggles and the highs and lows of life can't get. That is Jesus' kind of happiness. Yes, Jesus' kingdom is designed to maximize our happiness. Jesus wants you and me to be blessed and happy. But make no mistake, it isn't easy blessed or cheesy blessed. No, Jesus won't settle for trivial blessings that make us feel good for a moment but leave us hanging for a lifetime or for eternity. Jesus doesn't build his castle out of manufactured fiberglass. Jesus builds his kingdom out of solid as a rock, lasting forever stone that you can trust. Jesus' version of happiness is upside down. And that just throws me for a loop. Like when I was reading through these blessings, it, it didn't feel right. I was kind of confused. I was trying to match blessed with hunger. I was trying to match blessed with meekness or blessed with 
mercy or mourning, and they just don't seem to match, do they? It doesn't seem to compute. But then I backtracked a little bit, and I asked this this question. Who were the first listeners to this sermon? Like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a white, middle-class, employed man living in America. And so I can't help but hear Jesus' pronouncements of blessing through my white, middle-class, employed man in America headphones. But who were the first listeners to this message? They were the poor in spirit. They had been oppressed by the Romans. They were the ones who mourned because their way of life and their culture had been taken away from them by the Romans. They were the meek, the ones who knew to stay silent and shut up so they wouldn't get arrested. They were the merciful, the ones who wanted to fight but instead chose to make peace. And Jesus' original audience, the original listeners, were the poor in spirit, the meek, the hungry, the hurting, the broken, the marginalized. And so when they heard Jesus pronounce these blessings, they didn't hear one day you're going to get rich and drive the truck you've always wanted and have healthy kids who make good grades. They heard the kingdom can give you a joy that this world can never take away. The kingdom can change your heart and change your happiness even if it doesn't change your circumstances. And so for me, that means that if I'm ever going to feel these blessings, right? If me as a white, middle-class, employed man living in America, a very comfortable life, if I'm going to actually taste and enjoy these blessings, I'm going to have to move towards the poor in spirit. I'm going to have to move towards the hungry. I'm going to have to move towards the mourners, right? If I'm going to actually experience them, not just analyze them, not just study them, not just preach them, but if I'm going to actually taste the flavor of these blessings, delight in these blessings, I'm going to have to move towards the poor identify with the oppressed, hunger with the hungry, and hurt with the broken. And that's just crazy. Isn't that crazy talk? That's just weird. And yet I see so many of you guys doing this. I feel like so many of you, you disciple me in how to refuse to buy into our culture's definition of happiness and instead buy into Jesus's definition of happiness. Like there's a city group just after the eight o'clock, this city group on a regular basis, they go to a nursing home here in town and spend time with widows, spend time with people that most of uh, our society has just forgotten. And you know what they do? They play bingo with them, right? They get in their world, they tell jokes, they connect with them, they hear them, and they taste the blessing of those who mourn. Or another city group, it has like 15 kids in their city group, okay? That's a lot of kids, all right? That's my family plus one other family, you know, like, I'm kidding. But anyways, it's a lot of kids, a lot of complexities and clutter and wildness. But this family, instead of just focusing on their old children, have purposefully chosen to go spend time with the most at-risk children in our city. They sit down with them on a regular basis. They hear their stories, laugh at their jokes, hear their pain cry their tears so that they can know the blessing of those who are poor in spirit. Many of you, you've done this by becoming foster parents or adoptive parents. You were that classmate at school who stood up for someone who got bullied. You spent time with a widow who was lonely. You pour out your life 
for the forgotten. You sort clothes at the local homeless closet, um, clothing closet. You move towards those that Jesus calls blessed. That's life in the kingdom. One of my favorite stories of this in our church is uh, my friend Big Dave. Dave and Sherry Smith, man, back in the year 2000, Dave had lots of leadership potential, opportunities. He could have just gone and started his business and made money and kind of done all the successful stuff in America. But instead, he and his wife, Sherry, chose to spend their lives for the forgotten children of Council Bluffs. They started a ministry that they called trailblazers. And the idea was really simple. Let's just build relationships with children in poverty in Council Bluffs. Let's learn their world, love their families, give them the gospel, and do life with them. Now Trailblazers regularly serves over 300 children. They gather weekly to walk through Bible stories, teach kids to pray, love on them in really cool ways. And then every month they have like a different adventure where they teach the children life skills. They might go fishing or pumpkin planting or pumpkin picking or learn other things like that. And all of it's just in the name of men. Let's build relationships. Let's identify with them and point them to Jesus. Dave and Sherry could have had all the blessings that America could provide for them. All the prestige and the privilege that comes with being an awesome leader. They could have had so much provided for them, but they traded all of that for the upside-down blessings of life in Jesus' kingdom. For the upside-down comfort of hurting with the broken. For the upside-down success of losing everything but gaining Jesus. And the funny thing is, just recently, Dave and Sherry went to Disney's Magic Kingdom. Here's a photo of them. You see why they call him Big Dave? I'd never get in a fight with Big Dave. I'd just take a pass at that all the time. This was Dave and Sherry's first time away as a married couple for more than a night in 22 years of marriage. And don't you know, I mean, they had a blast at Disney's Magic Kingdom. I'm sure it was so much fun. But I just think, man, 22 years tag-teaming together to love the poor in spirit, the meek, the mourners, the broken. That's blessed, right? Can I just challenge us, church? Who is someone this week that you can move towards who's poor in spirit, who's hurting, who's broken, busted up? Who's someone you can move towards this week not to fix them, not to change them, not even to help them, but so that you can hear them, so that you can know them, so that you can taste the the upside-down blessings of life in Jesus' kingdom. Life in Jesus' kingdom is blessed, but it is upside-down blessed. Amen? I think there's one more truth about Jesus' kingdom that he gives us in these verses. In Matthew uh, 5, verse 12, Jesus lets us know where this upside-down happiness, this inside-out blessedness comes from. After declaring his like, uh, statements of blessing to us, he gives us kind of a peek in. He gives us the secret of this happiness. Look at verse 12. He says, rejoice and be glad. There's the happiness of the kingdom. Rejoice, be glad. How, Jesus? Like, where does that come from? 
He says, rejoice and be glad for you did the prophets who were before you. Here's what I think this means for you and for me, okay? Today's blessedness is from eternity's reward. Today's blessedness comes from eternity's reward. In verse 12, Jesus didn't say, one day you'll rejoice. One day you'll be glad when we all get to heaven and receive this great reward. No, Jesus said, today rejoice. Today be glad. Why? Because one day we'll get to heaven and receive our awesome, great reward. In other words, today's blessedness is directly tied to eternity's reward. The strength and vigor of our happiness in the kingdom today is knotted up and inseparably linked to the reward of being in heaven with Jesus forever. That's where we get the strength for our happiness, the strength of our blessedness from that promise of reward forever with Jesus in heaven. You got that? So how can we know for sure this is coming? If this reward in heaven sustains this blessedness in life, how can we know for sure that is coming? What can we do to make sure that is safe, that is secure? Well, we know it's not by our good works or turning the other cheek or making enough sacrifices on this side of heaven to earn a spot on that side of heaven. The Bible's really clear that no amount of our good works or good intentions or good efforts can get us there, can actually secure that for us. Our good works today don't earn us that reward of eternity. It just doesn't work. We're not that good. So how do we know that reward? We can know it because Jesus stepped out of heaven and he came to seek out those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn here, the unable, the unpopular, the weak, the meek. Jesus could have had all the blessings that heaven could provide him. He could have had all the comforts of an eternal throne with no scars, no bumps, and no bruises. But instead, Jesus traded all of that for the upside-down blessings of his kingdom, for the upside-down comfort of hurting with the broken, for the upside-down success of life in his kingdom, for the upside-down success of embracing you and me even while we are still sinners, even while we're still stuck in the poverty of our spirit, even while we still haven't turned to him, he chases after us and embraces us. Jesus left the blessings of a comfortable throne for the blessing of a rugged cross. And Jesus did that, yes, to secure our eternal reward of him forever in heaven. All who place their faith in Jesus know that reward, are secure in that reward. But Jesus also did it not just so we can one day get there, but so that he can bring the kingdom of heaven here and we can live life in his kingdom here and now so that we can trade our shallow versions of happiness for deeper, lasting versions of happiness that come with hurting with the broken so that we we can trade our shallow versions of happiness for one eternal, never-ending happiness, the reward of Jesus himself in heaven. That's why Jesus did that. So City Light, welcome to the Sermon on the Mount. And like the thrill rides at Disney World, you might want to buckle up and strap in. It's going to be a ride. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together and ask God to work in us. 
Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And I invite you to begin to interact with God. Talk to him, listen to him in your heart. There's no need to rush out of this moment. We've crafted it so that you don't just hear someone on a stage, but you hear from God himself. Could you just ask God what it is that you need to hear this morning? There are a lot of words just spoken. Could you ask him what his word is for you? Maybe it's one of these verses, one of these blessings that you need to latch on to and say, oh God, help me trust this is true. Maybe you're one of those who are poor in spirit. You're in a place of mourning right now. And you need to know that yours is the kingdom of heaven. That you'll be comforted in that reward of heaven. What is it that you need to hang on to that God's giving to you this morning? Maybe for you, you're one of those who you're in a place of comfort and you just know, man, I need the courage to move towards the poor in spirit. I need the courage to move towards those who mourn. I need to get around someone who's pure in heart to learn from them. I need to move towards the persecuted. And would you ask the Father this morning for the courage to do that? Father, I pray for the city groups in our church. Would you help us to take those steps towards the hurting and the broken in our city? Not to fix them, but to enjoy them, to know them, to hear their hearts and discover the upside-down blessing of your kingdom. Father, I pray for those who are right now poor in spirit, for the meek, for those who are hungering, for the merciful, who feel like life is overtaking them. Oh, may they know the blessing of your kingdom. Even now, would you change their happiness, even if you don't change their circumstances? And maybe there's some of you who'd say, man, I'm in the crowd. I'm not in the core. I'm just kind of checking Jesus out. And I just want to give you an invitation to cross into the kingdom, to put your faith in Jesus by simply admitting your sin, just owning up to it, being honest that you've pushed his kingdom away and tried to establish your own kingdom. By believing in Jesus as the one true king and coming under his reign and rule, he gave his life so that you could have him. And then commit your life to him. Even today, say, amen, I'm all in, Jesus. I'm yours. Oh, Father, would you work in many ways this morning? There's different needs in the room. There's different expectations and hopes in the room. And Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and minister to each of us. Speak to each of us. Let us hear from the Father. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.